The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and we are paying tribute to the great Pat Patterson today. He was uh, my mentor, my Yoda in a lot of different ways, but he was also a great friend, not just to me, to so many other people, to The Rock, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, John Cena, Steve Austin. Bret helped so many of us. Uh, he created the Royal Rumble. He was the only one who could tell Vince uh, that a story angle or match was the shits. And Pat was a great karaoke singer as well. Uh, I Did It My Way was his big theme song. All of you who were on the uh, very first Jericho Cruise know that. We had the Pat Patterson karaoke night that's going to continue forward. Every, every every time I do a Jericho Cruise, the Pat Patterson karaoke night will be included. Uh, he was a performer, an agent, a visionary, a prophet, a booker, so many things. Um, also, we didn't talk about it uh, as much as we should have with, with uh, Dave Meltzer, who joins us today. But Pat also... Uh, he spoke really good English, but he could butcher it from time to time. And I remember uh, he would always call me, uh, sometimes he would call me uh, uh, <laughs> uh, JYD instead of Y2J. And he called Rob Van Dam DVD and called his finish the Sprog Flash. So it'd be okay, so uh, DVD gives JYD the Sprog Flash. And that would be the finish of the match. And, of course, there's the classic, the people are going to go banana, which legit he said, meaning that people are going to go bananas, they're going to go crazy. But in that French-Canadian way of speaking, you, you leave off S's where there should be and uh, put S's where there shouldn't be. Pat also called me the hockey puck. If you saw my Instagram uh, post, I said, this hockey puck is going to miss you. And he called me the hockey puck because he said, I never get injured. You'll never get injured. You'll never break. You're like a hockey puck. So that uh, has carried on with me through my entire career ever since I met Pat in 1999. But like I said earlier, Dave Meltzer from Wrestling Observer returns to talk about Pat Patterson. He grew up watching Pat wrestle in San Francisco for Roy Shire, shares some great stories and memories about Pat through the years. Uh, though our tribute to Pat is just about ready to get started, I got a little housekeeping to take care of first. So as a friendly reminder that the Winnipeggers is live tomorrow night, Thursday, December 10th at 7.30 Eastern. On Facebook Live and on my YouTube channel, we're moving a little bit earlier. It's the great imitation contest. Uh, Dave Spivak, Ribo, and I uh, challenge each other to do impressions. He's just as crazy, funny, and stupid as the Idiot Olympics was the last live show we did. Grab a drink. Uh, have a laugh with us. Uh, maybe laugh at us because you're involved. We're going to ask you which imitations we should do as well. So please think of some good ones. 
It's a live episode of the Winnipeggers tomorrow night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on YouTube and on Facebook. Uh, if you're looking for some great Christmas gifts, don't forget to pick up your Painmaker apparel, T-shirts, hoodies, uh, sweatsuits, uh, all inspired by my tours and trips to Japan. Just go to painmaker.store and get your order in today. And don't forget about a little bit of the bubbly. Get them bottles. They're going fast, too. We've sold, I think, 60% of the inventory. And once uh, we get rid of those, it'll be your last chance to get them for a while. Go to littlebitofthebubbly.com. That's some great stuff uh, if you're looking for some cool Christmas gifts. And another one, my fifth book, The Complete List of Jericho. I posted some uh, some of the text and some pictures of what it's going to entail. Uh, the, my Royal Rumble stats that show I have the most time in the Royal Rumble in WWE history. My top 10 favorite uh, tag teams, my top 10 favorite matches. I showed a little bit of examples of all that stuff. And if you pre-order it now at Jericho30.com, uh, you're going to get all of that. A collection of every one of my 2,722 matches at the time that I had in my career. Uh, top 10 lists, personal stories from uh, superstars all around the world. Uh, lots of great stuff, rare photos. And don't forget, if you pre-order now, you'll get an exclusive 90-minute companion podcast of me describing some of the matches that you chose. So that's Jericho30.com. If that's not enough Christmas gifts, uh, we got another Christmas gift, which is uh, my tribute to Pat Patterson with Dave Meltzer right here on Talk is Jericho. So it's been a, a, a tough week as always. Um, it's been such a strange year, but uh, kind of a guy that I hadn't thought about in a while. And I had just heard about a week ago that he was not doing well. I'm talking about Pat Patterson. And of course, Pat passed away this week. And there's a lot of tributes coming out. And I wanted to talk to Dave Meltzer about it because, as you said, Pat told you, you might have known more about Pat than Pat knew about himself. Yeah, well, <laughs> definitely. I mean, he would say that about his wrestling career because, I mean, I grew up with his wrestling career, following him from, you know, when I was like a, a young child, you know, and he was probably... I mean, for sure, I mean, I've seen more live Pat Patterson matches than any wrestler. And, I mean, he was probably my favorite wrestler growing up, which was funny because, I mean, when I was thinking about this, in um, 1987, he came up to me once and he started, he was like, choked me from behind. And he just goes, you know, like, uh, I'm not sure if, like, uh, one of the worst things I ever did was uh, get made, made you a wrestling fan. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like that. Well, let's talk about this because I, I want to go into my experiences with Pat and hear your side of, of how Pat was so influential to WWE and, and to so many of, of the great workers of, of our time and, and, and before and after. But tell us a little bit about Pat as a wrestler because everybody always says how great he was as a wrestler. And we all know this and hear it. But what was it about Pat Patterson that made him your favorite wrestler when you were a kid? When we started, you know, he was a heel here. But he was a good promo uh, with with him and superstar Billy Graham were a tag team. And they were just great on promos. And that's what kind of hooked me on, you know, my friends were all wrestling fans. I kind of came late, I guess, in a sense. Um, and one day we were just at one of my friend's house watching wrestling. And they were all into it. And, you know, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens and those guys were like the big stars here. And I saw this one, Pat Patterson was doing the mask gimmick. He'd do, he'd do a loaded mask. <laughs> and he would explain the reason he wore a mask was because he was so good looking that the people in San Francisco <laughs> did not deserve to see him, his face. <laughs> so he would do his interviews without his, without his mask on, but he would go to the ring. He'd wrestle with a mask on and then load the mask, do headbutt. And that was his, you know, finish for heat at the time. 
And, uh, but he was, I mean, it was funny because I would say of all the wrestlers in the last like 30 years, the one who probably um, worked the most, like a babyface Pat Patterson, which is what I saw most of the time, was Steve Austin. I mean, it was just a brawl, but a very believable brawl. The brawl made sense. It wasn't like overuse of gimmicks or weapons. And if there's a gimmick, it's only there at the finish, for the finish. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was, and I'd, later I saw him, well, I mean, I started seeing him as a heel. Then I saw him as a babyface for years and years. Then he left the territory and he worked heel almost everywhere else. But, um, no, I mean, in, that, in the 70s, he was one of the great workers. I mean, at the level of, you know, you hear about the Harley race and Stevens and the Funk brothers. And he, he's right there with every one of them. Hmm. You know, and also, too, it was kind of that skill as a worker that led him to be possibly uh, triple h was saying something yesterday he's possibly the most the second most influential guy in the in the wrestling business possibly ever but i know for me i mean i said this and i think i think sean waltman might have lifted it from me but he he was my yoda uh, and i was luke skywalker and i've written about it in my books and talked about it for years like literally envisioning me running through the forest with pat strapped in a in a knapsack on my back like that's and it wasn't just for me. It was so many guys of my generation. Um, how, do you agree with that statement that he might be the second most influential uh, guy in the business, possibly ever, or at least of the modern era? Of the modern era in North America, yeah. I mean, I, when I, I never thought of it that way. I, but it was always like, you know, Vince is number one, and you don't really think of who's number two. But, I mean, as far as the, the work in the ring of the wrestlers, I mean, who else would it be? I mean, it's like... On a yeah. business standpoint, there might be people like Linda McMahon or something, you know, from a business standpoint. But as far as but she had no effect on the product when it comes to the product itself, the booking, but the training of the guys. I, I can't think of anyone else, really, when you think about it. I mean, and the other thing, too, is, is so much of like, um, you know, the decisions made by Vince. He was Vince's most influential number two guy or, you know, guy that w- worked with him. So, I mean, when you think of. I mean, one of the things I was thinking of is when you look at like these classic matches that everybody talks about, in most cases, I mean, he was right there helping the guys in the ring with the layout of these matches and giving them advice. And I mean, it was interesting to me when you said how much you learned from him because, you know, you'd been in the business yes. 10 years before you ever met him or nine nine years, right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. And the thing is with, with Pat, like... I say this, I learned, uh, like I was in the business for nine years, yes, but I didn't really understand what psychology was. I might have thought that I did, but I really didn't until I met Pat. And Pat taught me 90%, I'd say, of what I know about how to put together a wrestling match. And you you always laugh, we've talked before, when the, you, you say you can predict how my match is going to go from a finish standpoint, false finishes and all this sort of thing. A lot of that comes from Pat and maybe because you're such a big Pat fan is why you're able to predict my stuff because obviously we're not the same worker, but the mindset comes directly from Pat Patterson directly. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I can look back when I was like 12 and 13 years old. And the one thing that like, you know, there were, we had a lot of really good athletic wrestlers and we had a lot of good workers, but there was nobody who, I mean, and, and even as little kids, we didn't really understand it. But we all knew it's like, for whatever reason, the crowd is always the loudest during Pat Patterson matches. Mm. And the other thing is, is that it's like he was the maestro. He was the conductor of a crowd like, um, you know, at the top, top level, like Terry Funk. I mean, in the sense of 
you know, took you down, brought you up. It was absolutely, whether it was a baby face or a heel, like he had this ability to control the crowd. And when, when you're that age, you don't really understand it's happening until like years later when someone goes, oh, you know that like, you know, Pat Patterson was the best guy at uh, manipulating the crowd. And then I think back and it's like, yeah, he did. It was the crowd. The matches were always the most exciting. I mean, and, and that was the other thing is like, whether it was a big crowd or, a, you know, a big city or a small city. I mean, and I think it's one of the reasons I went to so many live shows is he was always in the main event. And I mean, the match was always good and most often great. I mean, it's like you got your money's worth. You knew you did. And really like the San Francisco territory, I think almost anyone will tell you is that the demise of the San Francisco territory was when him and Roy Shire had the falling out and he left because it was just like, that was the glue. I mean, it's like, it's like, it was just like you, the matches weren't as good. The main events weren't as good. We had good guys after that were good workers, but you didn't have that. I mean, he had the tenure, which was part of it. So, you know, you, you had the history, yeah. but nobody could give you consistently that level of excitement where every time you went to the show, even if the prelims weren't that good, the main event always delivered. You never, I mean, I never left a show going on. Ah, this wasn't a very good show. After he left, sometimes it was like, ah, the show is so-so. And, you know, when it's the show is so-so, you kind of start losing interest in going. When the, when the show, when you leave the show and you're always in a buzz because he was almost always mm. on last, always left you hanging. I can't wait for next week when he gets revenge on whoever because of what they did. You know, it's, it's just, it's really a cool thing, you know, when you're growing up and you're going to, uh, you know, yeah. shows like every, every week or every other week. The thing is, too, though, David, it's interesting just listening to you talk about that because it's funny because if you're if you're talking about once again Pat being so influential as a main eventer, but and so great as a main eventer, look at the modern era main eventers, and if you think who are the greatest workers in the '90s and 2000s, it's Sean, it's Brett, it's Rock, it's if you put Jericho in there, thank you. If you put Kurt in there, whoever is in there, they're all. I'd say Pat guys. I don't remember Steve Austin being a Pat guy. I'm sure he was, but. I remember those other guys like Brett and Sean and Kurt Angle and Jericho and Edge. Like Pat was our guy. Like if there was a match, Pat was usually the agent. And that's just the way it was at Triple H because you were working on top and Pat was always with the top guys. And the reason for that is, like you said, Dave, we'd all been in the business for 10 years, 15 years, whatever. Nobody has to tell us, you know, how to put together the match. But what Pat could do that I love working with him is that he was like a great co-writer of a song. We would sit down and I would start with an idea, then he would throw an idea in, then we'd reconfigure it, change it, change it, change it, until we found something that we both really went, that's great. Lower level agents would get insulted if you said, I don't like this idea. And they would get mad. Pat never said that. He would always say, here's, you'll, you'll appreciate this, here's what I'm visualizing. Here's what I'm visualizing. I'm visualizing this. And then, okay, well, Let's try this. And then he would never get mad if you didn't like it. Okay, well, let's, what do you got? And then the, he would challenge you, but also had the humbleness to not think, well, I'm fucking Pat Patterson, so my idea is the best and you better listen to me. He wasn't that type of, a, of an agent. That's why he was so much fun to work with. Yeah, you know, and, and he, he had the certain, like, it's funny because sometimes I, I, I was not around him socially a lot, but I was somewhat so at some sometimes some when he would come to San Francisco, we would bump into each other and talk or, or Vegas, actually, maybe even as much. And it's like he I don't know, he had that glow about him when you talk to him. But also he 
at times, like, would just go, um, ah, I don't want to talk wrestling. You know what I mean? You yeah, know, yeah. Like, I, wrestling. I don't want to talk wrestling. And then sometimes he would just like, oh, I just want to talk. You know, he just loved to talk about San Francisco and wrestling. And then other times it's like, ah, you know, there's nothing more boring than talking about championships and matches of one and stuff <laughs> like something besides wrestling. You know what I mean? It was, it was just an interesting, I always found him very interesting in, in that way. Because it, it was just, he loved wrestling, but he loved like the performance end. And, you know, when I was writing about him this week, the one thing that really, I mean, he, he grew up and he learned from Roy Shire. And one of the things that I really have figured out is that Roy Shire was like a booking genius. But Roy Shire was, everything had to be serious and everything had to make sense, which is good. You know, it was great for Patterson because I'm sure like what Patterson taught you to an extent was what Roy Shire taught him and Roy was the exact opposite of Pat. Roy was like a complete asshole. And that's how he, he taught you by being an <laughs> asshole. And that's how Pat learned. And I think Pat learned because he did love to talk Roy Shire. And I think that like Roy Shire, when he first, when Pat first came to San Francisco and he's 24 years old, but already a really good worker. And he comes in and the first thing like Roy Shire is besides are you queer? You know, I heard you were queer. You know, like the very first word is like, your body looks like shit. And I mean, from the standard of the time, you know, he was working other territories and, and it wasn't San Francisco, which was a real major top of the line territory. And Roy, I think, knew from the start that he was going to push the guy. And it's like, you got to go to the gym. He would just go, your body looks like shit. And Pat responded by going to the gym, which he hated to do. He always told me, I <laughs> work out, but I loved my profession. So I worked out. And he was never a body guy, but the body was presentable enough and the talent was so great that it was not a detriment. And, you know, but with, with Pat, he loved, the, he loved the comedy. I mean, he would tell me stuff like uh, on wrestling stuff and he would bring like something up and I would think that it would be something, oh my God, you know, you're San Francisco like me, you're going to hate this segment. And he would love it. He just, I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. So he loved comedy and wrestling yeah. and comedy in general anyway, because all he would do is, as long as try to tell jokes and poke fun and get you embarrass you in front of people, you know all that, right? Well, the, the, you guys, I listened to your show you did with Pat Lafrade yesterday or whatever it was, and then the classic Pat joke that he would say every time. You know who was asking about you last week? Who? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Drew McIntyre wrote about that. You know, like the the he did that, and then um, I wonder, you know, because Pat brought Pat Laprade brought this up. And it's like, I wonder if that's where The Rock got, you know, um, it doesn't matter what you think. You know, yeah. I don't know, but it's like, it's it's close enough. It's a very Pat style. He's also the type of guy, you know, like uh, when guys are going over their matches earlier in the day, they all sit on the on the dasher boards, like on the on the guardrails, but they're black kind of, you know, like they're the, the barriers. And Pat was always the guy that would push you. Uh, he would he, he would come from behind and pull you back to where you thought you were going to fall. And then stop you. He would do that all the time. It's like, fuck, Pat, enough. Like, you're like, ah, you thought you were going to fall. And it's like, yeah, again, thanks, man. <laughs> but he also, too, I remember one time, because like you said, he had a real goofy sense of humor to where we were having some some ladder match or maybe it was one of the TLCs or something. And he, he was adamant, adamant about doing this idea where you pull a ladder out, but it's a short ladder. Like, it's too short. Like it's only like a step ladder, maybe like two or three feet, and you and you open it up and you climb and you realize it's too short and you, like I said, that's stupid. Like it's a 
ladder match. Like it's really serious stuff. He's like, no, it'd be great. You you pull the ladder out and it's too short. That's funny. <laughs> Maybe if I was Hornswoggle, but it's not funny. Having to argue with, like you said, one of the greatest booking geniuses, arguing with him, probably the worst argument we ever had. That I thought it was a terrible idea. And he he was adamant that, that we had to do it. And Fry's like, fine. You guys don't want to have fun, then forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another thing that, that you were talking about earlier about being in the business for nine years and meeting up with Pat, I remember I, I, I asked him so many questions, especially when I first got there, because as you remember, it wasn't an easy, easy time for me when I first got to WWE. There's a lot of kind of hazing or whatever it was at the time and i still remember so many so many tips that he that he that he gave me and one of them was do you remember when like when ddp was doing the diamond cutter and his gimmick was that he would try and get into it as many different ways as possible and every match had a different way well i used to do that with the walls of jericho there would always be some kind of dipsy doodle and roll through and order and i remember pat came to me one time he said like why why do you do that i said what do you mean he goes it's it's fat on a piece of steak. It's fat. Cut the fat. Why do you always have to do some type of dipsy doodle into it? It's okay sometimes to just double leg the guy and put him in the hole. Like you don't always have to try and be cute because you're being too cute and you're missing the point of what you're doing with this finishing move. And you don't think about that when you're a young kid coming in. Everything's got to be new. And, 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 and I say that all the time. I said it to Nick Jackson the other night. Uh, there was a match where he was making a save when somebody had Matt in a figure four or whatever, and he goes to the top rope and does a swanton on his back to make the save. And I said, this is, comes directly from the Pat Patterson mindset. Why would you do that? Just run in and kick him in the head. Why do you need to do this fat? Cut the fat. And that's a, a Pat rule that I still use every single match I ever put together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, you know, back, back then, the way the style was, it was like you didn't do as much you know, as, as you do now, and you would do it pretty directly. So when you did it, people had that recognition, you know, WWE has always had that. You have mm. that recognition factor yes. of where you were going as opposed to tricking you into where you're going, but ending up there. And I think both of them have merit and probably doing it some way, sometimes that way, in some ways, the other way exactly are, are both good, you know, but, but the whole thing is, is it doesn't always have to be that you can just do it directly sometimes too. And it's and, and at the right point, it's probably just as effective. And that's why I mean, Pat would point out those little things that like he was such a, he might like, uh, he doesn't remind me, but, but Negro Cassis was really good that way. He knew I was a good worker. What he did with me is give me the little, little detail tricks of the trade that go from making you a good worker to making you a great worker. And that's what Pat did for, for me. I'm, I'm sure that everybody else would say the same thing. In, in that he would he would help you along. I remember another time. This is a great story that you'll appreciate when um, when the first original uh, NXT uh, was the Nexus. Remember the Nexus? Um, yeah, yeah. Wade Barrett and his gang of guys. And so we were doing something where I had to work with Heath Slater, and Vince wanted me to put him over. And 
you know me, man. I usually don't get, but I flipped out. I'm like, what? This guy's like a nothing. Yeah. Like, why do you want me to put him over? And he's like, oh, you know, whatever reason he was. And I was like, I went straight looking for Pat. And I went to Pat and I said, can you believe what this guy wants me to do? He wants me to put over Heath Slater. Can you believe that? What should I do? Pat goes, he's smoking a cigarette in a no smoking area, of course. <laughs> he goes, do it. I go, what? What? He goes, just do it. And he was basically telling me that everyone knows you're going to beat this guy, but you're a heel. If he beats you, you can flip out. You'll get way more over by losing this match. You'll have much more of, 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 of a bone to pick and, and meat to chew on for a promo. He said, no one's even going to remember that this guy beat you next week. They don't even know what his name is. And they still don't know what his name is. This actually gets you more over as a heel to lose this match to this, hmm. you know, opening match jobber, right? And I never thought of it. And, and, and if Vince could have described it that way, I wouldn't have had a problem. But Vince did not speak like Pat did. Pat, Pat can speak wrestler talk. Vince does not know how to speak that because he's never been a wrestler. So instantly you think, Vince is out to get me or this is a he's trying to screw me or whatever but Pat could explain it in a way that I understood it and he was right it was it was great Slater pinned me and whatever I did tantrum and, and promo afterwards but had Pat not been there to, to kind of like explain it to me it would have been a completely different outcome yeah I mean one of the things with him is because he was around and and obviously he must have just picked stuff up because again like when it comes to like I mean, I, like I said, when I was a kid and even older, it was like, you don't know what a smart worker is, but you can kind of look back now and see it, but you know when it's working on you. Right. And, um, you know, he was a natural in the ring. I mean, the, one of the funny, you know, it was like Ray Stevens. One of the funny things about him is that like, you know, he was not a great athlete in theory in the sense that he didn't grow up. He was like a hockey star or did really good as a basketball player and then decided, I mean, you know, the only sport he ever really tried was figure skating and, but he went in there and wrestling and he was just, I mean, I would watch him and I mean, he like, the guy never made a mistake. Everything was perfect. I mean, it's like, it's one of those guys where you sit at ringside and I did, you know, it was a kid sitting at ringside and it's like, his stuff, like it, there were no holes in his, his game. I mean, he, whatever he did and he did everything, you know, brawl, he could wrestle, he could do everything. He was one of the most complete workers, but he was also, you know, like, like you talked about it, and everyone talked about it, even back then is like smartest workers, you know, he, he, you know, lead a match, but make the other guy look good. I mean, that's the other thing is, is that he would camouflage everyone's weaknesses when he was in the ring. Yeah. I mean, and I think that one of the things like with, with, when you're sort of talking about this is, is that his mentality was always that like he never ran over, whether it was a baby face or a heel, he never ran over guys, you know, and beat him in four minutes. I never saw that. It was always 12 minutes. And the guy, even if it was the opening match guy, especially when he was a heel, more when he was a heel than when he was a baby face, but when he was a heel, absolutely almost every time that guy had him in trouble and the guy had him on the ropes and the fans were, were waiting for that upset and then they didn't get it. You know, and you know, and I mean, I actually see that in you a lot when you, um, you know, in, in, in a lot of your matches, it's the same thing where the guy's got that big run on you and the people don't really expect him to beat you, but then it comes so close and so close. It's like, oh, maybe we're getting the upset and then you right. don't, or sometimes you do, but, but that was the, that was the Pat Patterson live event and television match style was getting you as a heel that, that 
this guy who was like maybe a mid-level guy or even opening match guy, we're going to see this big upset. And then you don't. But then maybe once every two years, maybe you do. Well, it's like, you know, and that's the thing. If you do it once every year or two years, people always think it could happen. It's like I remember one time in all Japan, I think it was Kawada and, and Misawa. They used to go like 60 minutes uh, every championship match. And then one time they had a four minute match to where you knew like, hey, these guys can win at any time, you yeah. know, and and that's a great point with the Pat theory is that once in a while when the upset happens, then people know that this upset can happen. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, about Vincent Pat's relationship because another great, I just used it last week before he passed away. I, I use so many Patisms that they that sometimes I think they're mine and they're like, oh, that's a Pat. But um, he had a great saying, I'm sure you've heard it before, when we would talk about Vince, how he changes his mind. And, and Pat would always say, sometimes he likes chocolate, other times he likes vanilla, but it's always his ice cream store. Yeah. So give him what he wants. Sometimes he likes chocolate, sometimes he likes vanilla, but it's his ice cream shop. And I say that all the time, even when people talk about Tony Khan or whatever. Listen, it doesn't matter what you want. It's his show. It's his company. And we have to do what the boss wants. And some days it's chocolate, and some days it's vanilla. But Pat could get away with basically telling Vince, like, this show sucks. And nobody else could ever say that. And he would sit in booking meetings and basically tell Vince, what does everyone think? Everyone like this? And, everyone, of course, all the yes men are like, this is great. And Pat would say, this is terrible, Vince. This is terrible. Where's the young guys? What are we doing? And everyone kind of just sit there like, oh, my God. He's chewing out Vince at the front of the booking meeting. And, of course, he could do that. But they obviously had a great relationship for many, many, many years. Yeah, I always wonder, like, what it was. Because, like, when, when he went up there, you know, in, um, I think it was 79, you know, it was, you know, I just figured, okay, you know, he's going to spend a year there. You know, like, like you go, that's what you did in those days. He's going right. to spend a year there, and then he's going to go, he'll, he'll get his matches with Backlund, and he's going to go somewhere. And he never, you know, I mean, he, he went other places, but he never left in the sense. And, and I don't know if it was Vince Sr. saw something special in him or Vince Jr. I mean, they made him, you know, they turned him babyface. They made him TV announcer. And then, you know, one day they made him vice president. And he was like, um, I remember him telling me the story about how, I mean, I'm just a wrestler. What am I doing as a vice president? You know, it's like, mm. it didn't even compute to him, you know, working in an office. It's like, you know, he, he, but he learned it. You know what I mean? And, and he adapted to it. I mean, it's, it's, I think one of the things that's amazing about him is like, you know, like not every great baseball player, every great worker makes a great coach. Exactly. Right. But, but, but he, and maybe it's, it's, it's because of the love of the wrestling or whatever it was. I mean, he was a guy who was, was both. I mean, sometimes, you know, you probably have run across people who weren't ever really made giant money as wrestlers, but you know, backstage coaching young guys, they're, they're great. And they were probably even good workers, but they didn't, they just didn't do, you know, whatever that level. Dean Malenko. I mean, Dean Malenko is a great coach who never really made it to huge stardom, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was a star, but yeah, not at like, but, but Patterson and you know, a lot of the, the great, great, 
guys, sometimes they just get by like in, in, in baseball where you'd have this really great guy and he would get by on talent, but he couldn't coach it yeah. for, at all. But Patterson, I guess maybe because it was so mental and also because of the, I think a lot of the Shire stuff, because Shire was so detail oriented, every spot in the match had to make sense. And, you know, Stevens and, you know, I mean, here's the thing. It's like when Stevens and Patterson were the best team in the world, you know, they would go in there and do their match and Roy would yell at them about, you're doing too many high spots. You're, <laughs> you're you know, you're, you're, you know, the, the same stuff that, you know, will always go on generation after generation. That's right. But at the same time, you know, it's like if Patterson at this point be going like, we're getting the crowd, we're drawing money, you know, like that. But he probably in his mind was a combination of, okay, we're good. I know we're good, but you know what? I'm going to listen to his points and because he can make us better because he's, he's kind of a genius too, you know? And mm -hmm. I think that's probably where that all came from is that like, you know, look, you know, in your, in your situation right now, you're still always learning, you know? Yes. And, and, and that's the, that's the key. And I think that he was like that too, because, you know, he's 55, 60 years old working in there, but he's not the fossil going like in my day. And yeah. No, no, dad. never. And never. You know I mean? It's like, it's like he may tell you to slow it down for a reason, but it's not to go back in time. It's because he can kind of teach you a little bit on how to make, you know, less mean more, which is always the goal anyway. Right. You're right. But, but also too, Dave, and it's something that, that, that I really got this when I went back to WWE in 2016 and I started working with Seth Rollins and Kevin and, and Roman and started learning from those guys. It's a new style of, of the business. And instead of going like, why are you doing three topes in a row? Like, you know, almost sort of like, like in my day, one tope right. was it. Yeah, yeah. And then I started realizing this is the way it is now. It's changed. So let's incorporate that. Pat was the same way. He was not the guy that would go like, hey, you know, in 1975, this is the style of match that worked better. He knew that things had changed, but he also knew that the basic, I said this the other day, it's, it's another Pat. The, the basic concept of what wrestling is, is the same. It's just like hockey. Hockey has changed since the 70s. In the 80s, but the but the goal the, the point is the same. You grab the puck, you skate down the ice, you shoot you shoot the puck in the net, you score a goal and win the game. Wrestling is still that, but it's much different than it used to be. And Pat was cool with that because he still knew the basic concept was good guys and bad guys and uh, uh, connecting with an audience. And he would help the guys do that with the basic principles, even though they embellish it so much differently in this day and age. He was great at that. Yeah. You know, it's funny because um, when you think back, cause I even remember him telling me once about how, you know, he didn't have, I, I mean, I, I mean, I think he graduated high school, but he certainly didn't have a college education and, you know, he was a wrestler, you know, I mean, that's what he did from when he was 17 until, you know, he was in his forties and then he became an, you know, a, a, an administrator. And it's like, you know, here I am, you know, vice president of this company, but he, he took it as like almost an emotional thing in the sense of he, he loved the business. I mean, you could really tell like when he would go back to the cow house and he would have the tears coming down his eyes. Mm -hmm. He didn't want anyone to see it because it was like, this is the building, you know, where I made it. And, and one of the stories was, is, you know, his father and him, especially when he came out and, and he told his father, he was gay. Like, it's like, okay, get out of my house. You're disgraced to my family. You know, the whole stereotype of, what would happen in 1957, 58, right. right. You know, in, in uh, a religious family, you know, and, 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 you know, 
they really didn't have a good relationship. And then one day, you know, this is probably mid sixties. He flew them all to the cow palace when he was on top and, you know, drove him, picked him up in the, in the Cadillac, you know, where, cause he was, look, I'm a star. I'm like really making, <laughs> yeah. and, and like his father at that point was like, wow, you're like, really, you're like really a success. And it was like, that was like one of the proudest moments of his life was, you know, and, and I think for other reasons too, but that's one of those things where he would go to the cow palace and it was like, that's where his father finally accepted him, which is funny because it's the name of his book. Yeah. Accepted. Yeah. You know, as far as, wow, you know, you're my son and, and you're, you're a star and you're, you're like, really, you really did great for yourself. Yeah, and, and that's the thing too. Like, like you you've mentioned this the other day when people say you know Pat was the first openly gay wrestler, or whatever. Like, and then I was like, who gives a shit? Like to right. me, that was that never even mattered. Like, you know, it's funny. I had I, I, once again a couple of years ago, I had Rob Halford from Judas Priest on my show, and he he he's gay, but in the eighties he couldn't say anything, and and I was comparing Pat and 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 Rob in these two macho businesses of wrestling and heavy metal and how they were gay and couldn't really say it, but everyone knew it anyways. And, and, and like Pat would joke about it. I remember I'm going to get this wrong, but it was something along the lines of you better be careful. Like when I was an amateur wrestler, if I got behind you, you're, fucked. <laughs> you know, he would use these type of jokes and nobody care cared and nor should they care. And it was never, you know, ever presented or brought up or, or ever was ever a subject. Yeah. So he, he's gay and whatever. And he, he told stories um, like you mentioned the other day about how, when he and Ray Stevens were a team that Ray would, you know, pick up the chicks and that he <laughs> would have to be the wingman and would have to take one for the team. And I, I think there was even one time where I think he said one time that he and May Young hooked up at some point or something along those well, lines. They did, so they didn't, she came on to him. Oh. He was like starting out, she shows up at his hotel room in, in her brawn panties. And so he's like, oh, God, what do I do? So they start drinking and he just makes sure that she gets passed out before <laughs> anything happens. And then like, you know, gets her to the next town somehow the next morning. But it was like the whole thing is, like, oh, my, this is before the Ray Stevens years where he kind of sometimes had to, I don't know, it was often, but, you know, the take one for the team. I think yeah. it was. He didn't have a Ray Stevens then where you just sort of had to do that. So it was just like, how do I get into this? Oh, my God. So it's just like, we keep drinking all night. Eventually, she'll just pass out. <laughs> but but once again, it's, it's just interesting to me that, that he and Vince were so close because, A, he smokes. Vince doesn't like smokers. He's French. So he's got a thick accent, which we know Vince doesn't care for accents either. So you could, th th there was obviously something there, and it was more than just how talented Pat was. They they were obviously got along very well, but on the surface, seems like very odd, a very odd couple. Yeah, I mean, in 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 so many ways, but I think Pat, you know, one of the things is is that Pat was very entertaining to be around. He was very yeah. charming, and I think that that was part of it. He he probably charmed Vince, but I mean, I it's like I I don't I mean I don't know the dynamics of like the late seventies and early eighties, but I my sense is is that it wasn't like Pat was a guy kissing up to Vince to become an administrator. I right. think it was more Vince decided, hey, this guy is is my guy and I trust him and he's got this knowledge that other people don't have and that I don't have and everybody likes him. You know, I mean, that's the other thing is like, you know, everybody really, you know, I mean, there's always when you're, when you're the booker, there's always going to be some people who don't like you. I mean, but for the most part, I mean, I, you know, you would know better than me when it comes to this, but it, it always felt like 
everybody liked to be around him. He didn't make you like, I mean, he made you uncomfortable, but not in a way of like, oh, I don't want to be around this guy. I mean, it was just sort of like that goes with the territory. He's going to say some jokes at your expense, but it's Pat and it's okay. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And um, like I said, he could get away with those things because once again, he, he was not a yes man, didn't claim to be and didn't want to be. So you would always get the direct opinion from Pat. And I know sometimes it led to heat like Dolph Ziggler, Pat would always stand up for Dolph Ziggler in the booking meetings. We got to push Dolph. We got to push Dolph. We got to push Dolph. And I think that almost led to Dolph getting heat for it to where they would start doing the opposite just to piss Pat off, to just have him lose a lot or whatever. Because Pat was always, you know, you know, you know, Vince thinks like, you know, let's, let's, let's rib Pat and, and bury Dolph Ziggler. Cause it's funny to me, even though it's a detriment to your company to do that. But you know, he was very vocal about certain talent and because he was, had no filter and didn't care. I think sometimes that, that, that the people he was trying to push kind of got caught in the crossfire. Mm, that's, that's, that's interesting, but still, I mean, like there are guys, I mean, Brett and Sean, for example, I mean, if, you know, looking back now, you would go, Oh, of course you would push Brett and Sean. But when that happened in the early nineties, I mean, that was not Vince's MO. I mean, at all. I mean, I remember in the late 80s where it was like I thought that Brett and Sean were the two best guys and Randy Sav- with Randy Savage and the whole company but um, and DiBiase as well. But it was like I always thought, well, they're destined to be mid-card because that was the size era. You know what I mean? And they were never going to get past that. And, you know, at one point, you know, the, the talent made it. And it wasn't like when that happened, Vince pushed back. I mean, Vince did go with them. You know, I mean, there's some guys yeah. Vince – kind of went with but then kind of backed off on it's like he did go with both of those guys and but they were both you know pat guys you know were uh, yes big time and, 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 it, and it's funny because i remember also like when um when uh you know the rockers when they first showed up and then they got fired right away i just remember pat going like you know no matter what anyone says those guys are great workers and this was at a time where a veteran would never, they were young guys, but a veteran would never say that. That's what I would say, right? That's what a fan right. we're talking about would say. But he would say that, and that's probably why a year later, you know, he pushed for them to get back. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Was Pat pretty much behind the uh, the 60-man Iron Man match at WrestleMania? Um, You mean the Bret Hart-Chan match? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, I don't know if it was his idea, but but th- that match came from San Francisco with Roy Shire. The first, um, I forgot what we called it here. It might have been a marathon match, but it was most falls in 60 minutes. And Pat, I saw two two matches at the Cow Palace with Pat, and they did it in San Jose. I think I saw one or two in San Jose as well. But the, the Cow Palace matches were unbelievable. With One was Ray Stevens and one was Don Morocco. But that's, so I think given that they didn't do that match in other parts of the country that I'm aware of, it may have been a Roy Shire match, but if not, you know, so I think that that would be where he got it from. And then he did it in Montreal with um, Raymond Rougeau as well. Oh, so wow. Okay. It's, I mean, I, I don't know, like the Royal Rumble, obviously we all know was Pat's idea. The, the Iron Man match, my gut says it was, but I, I, no one's ever said that, but I just feel 
you know, how he came up and, and he did them and he did them that, that it was probably his idea as well. Wasn't he gone at that point in time? They brought him back to do that match or am I mistaken with that? There was something about going. I mean, he, he left and came back so many times. Um, you know, I mean, there were so many times it's like Pat's retired, he's done. And yeah. then all of a sudden he comes, he comes back for a while or he would come back for one weekend a month or one, yep. one month or something like that. And, or just, he'd come back and help put the rumble, rumble together and stuff. Um, you know, um, so I don't remember all the different times where he would come and, and, and go and everything like that. You would probably know better because you were there. Right. Yeah. He, you're exactly right. Pat's retired. And then, you know, three, four months later, he shows up once a month or just for pay-per-views. But I think like, like you mentioned, he just loved wrestling so much that he would go to Montreal in the summer and then go to Florida in the winter. Right. And he would go sing karaoke every night and he'd play golf or whatever he's doing. But man, that's another thing too that I want to bring. What a great, great karaoke singer he was, and and my way by Frank Sinatra was his. That was his showstopper that he would end the show with. And I actually went to a karaoke. My friend has a karaoke uh, stage at his house, and went there the other night, and I sang my way at the end of the night. And I broke down crying. I couldn't even finish the song. It was terrible. Like people are like, we've never seen you like break down like that before. We've never seen you cry. And I think it's because you know when somebody passes away, you take it in. And you know it's coming at some point when someone means that much to you, it's going to hit you. And it hit me singing my way where it was just like, oh. But, um, and I want to talk about Pat's relationship with, with Dwayne Johnson, with The Rock. But there was a great night we were in Montreal and Pat took us to his favorite karaoke bar, me and Rock and Bubba and Devon and a couple other kind of people. And, uh, and, uh, I, we had a three, a three, uh, a three song punch at the end. I sang enter Sandman, which everybody loved. And then rock sang the devil went down to Georgia, which he transposed to the rock went down to Georgia. Uh, and then the last one of course was Pat singing my way. And it was like standing ovation. And you know, he was a crooner for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. You know, the last time I ever saw him as a matter of fact was on my first Jericho cruise. Uh, he called me. Um, I think Bertrand called me, who was his, the author of his book and maybe his assistant or something at that point, or just, he, he did, like when, when when we were in England together, you know, Bertrand was always with him. It was me and Bertrand and him. The last, you know, the, I guess the last time I saw him was he and I did a show in England together. You know, like oh wow, a, yeah, which was really the only time we've ever done anything like that. It was um, and it was just interesting, you know, because um, I mean, it's like it was sad in a way because his memory was was starting to go, but I don't think like like I knew I knew it because I knew all the history and everything and everything, but. I know when he did the show in front of the people, I don't think the people knew it because he was so charming and such a great storyteller. And he, you know, I mean, he had whatever it is, you know, 60 years of wrestling stories. I mean, it's not like, but I could tell, you know, certain, certain things, you know, one, it was, it was sad to me because one fan came up to him and just goes, you know, Pat, what did you think of, what do you think of Buddy Rose? And he just goes, I don't know who you're talking about. And then I'm mm. just blow away diet, Portland, Oregon, blah, 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 blah. And it just didn't register, you know, and it was kind yeah. of sad, you know, but, but he was still really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? But I mean, as far as like, you know, telling the WWE stories and Vince and everything, you know, it's just great. Still very lucid and very cognizant. Yeah. And, yeah. and what I was going to say is, so Bertrand called me and said that Pat heard about this cruise and he wants to go because a lot of his friends are on it. Jim what? Ross is on it. Yeah. So I had him come on to do the Pat Patterson karaoke night. He hosted the karaoke night. And from now on, every cruise will do the Pat Patterson karaoke night as a tribute to him. But it's one of those things, if you remember on the cruise, I'm, I'm always so busy. And I only saw him for about five minutes and just talked to him briefly. I'm like, 
I wish I would have hung out with them and had them come to my cabin or something, but it goes by so fast and you forget about that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I just thought it was cool that he, he requested to be on and he's like, and Lawler too, both of them said, we just want to be on the cruise. We'll do it for free. I'm like, I can't have you guys do it for free. I'll give <laughs> at least let me pay for your travel and make sure that everything's taken care of for you. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Did you go to Rocky Johnson's funeral last year? Well, that, that, was, that was the week of the cruise. That's right. I had just gotten off the cruise... And I was at the airport, and that's when I was hearing all the stories about Rocky Johnson's funeral. And what happened to the funeral? Did, did something happen with Pat at the funeral? Well, I think that Pat, um, you know, I, he was he was unfortunately. I mean, I think the from what um, people had told me, the dementia hit, and the family understood. Like Rock was was you know whatever. But I think some people who were like um, not family, whatever it was, I you know he was just. One, I don't know. It, Told it some jokes or something that were not yeah, appropriate off, or something. Off color jokes at the church, yeah, basically. And it, it made it made some women who were married to wrestlers, and it made some people on the the, the other family that because Rocky had another wife, you know, his other wife and their family. So they who didn't know Pat, whereas the Rocky side, they all knew Pat, and he, you know, there was nothing that Pat would ever do that they would find anything bad because you know he was so influential in um, in Dwayne's life. I mean, he's the guy who discovered Dwayne. He was the guy and you know what, how, how it was back then. And, you know, Dwayne comes in and he's big and he's good looking and he's a great athlete and he can talk. And, you know, there's people who want to see him be the top guy and there's people who don't want to see him be the top guy or afraid that he might pass them by. And, and he's, you know, still like in his early mid twenties and it's a minefield and Patterson's kind of running interference and navigating for him and then teaching him what he doesn't know because, I mean, he's still new. And I mean, people forget how, how young in the business he was. I mean, he, yeah. he's probably six months in the business and he's, and he's already getting a push and probably eight months in, he's intercontinental champion and probably too soon. But at the same time, it's like, what are you going to do with this guy? And then, you know, a year later, he's taught, you know, right there at the top at, at WrestleMania, you know, pretty much by 99. So it's, you know, it's like, it's, it's, um, you know, but, but Pat ran, you know, Pat was his guy. And I, and, and you know, I, I'm sure that like for him, I mean, he would always, I would always see when Pat, when, um, when, when uh, rock started to be a movie star, you know, at the very beginning, and he would talk about Pat in this reverent way to people who were, you know, in the movie world where the, you know, it's not like the wrestling world where we all know Pat Patterson, right. The movie world. And he would talk about his mentor, Pat Patterson. And then also whenever the subject of, of, you know, homosexuality would come up it was always like my mentor was was gay yeah. and he ass and he was a badass and you know and and it's funny because i mean the one thing that you know again i i, I you know this last week you know probably like you when all the headlines pat patterson first gay wrestler died and it's like of all you know it's like of all yeah. the things it's that's like, what you're gonna hang your hat on exactly yeah it would bother me i'd go like okay like there's 15 things 
that are monumental about Patterson. And to me, it's like maybe number 12 or 13. Yes, you mentioned yeah. it. Because it's important. But my God, you know, look at the inventor of the Royal Rumble, one of the greatest singles workers ever, one of the greatest tag workers ever, one of the greatest coaches ever. I guess the second most influential person of our generation in this business, and he did happen to be gay. And, and you know, but at the same time, I know that like when, when I think that like for me, because I found out that, that Pat was gay, probably I'm going to guess when I'm 11 and I don't, I don't even know what it is. I'm just right. inside. Oh, you know, like it, it was the, the women who were at ringside with me who were, you know, whatever you want to call them, the groupies, whatever it was. Right. They were always cool to me. I shot pictures. They liked the pictures. Um, they love to talk wrestling. I love to talk wrestling. Right. You grow up. That's how you grow up. And it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, Pat Patterson's really good looking, but he doesn't like girls. And I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> and then after, but after a while, it was like, you know, and people like in my, in San Francisco, people kind of knew, but it meant nothing because he was a TV star. And it was kind of like in our social circle, being gay meant nothing. It was like, there's no stick. Because you have to be taught the stigma, you know, from yeah. whether it's parents or the football team or whatever. But to us, the first gay person that we heard of and knew was Pat Patterson, who was great talker, great worker, superstar, kick-ass babyface, tough guy. You know, not a real tough guy, but he exuded being a tough guy when he played when he worked as a babyface, like like you no know, like Austin did. Yeah, and it's kind of like okay, that's your first thing. And from that point on, it's kind of like, you know, it's it's no stigma. I mean, I think if it wasn't for that, I I think that I, it would probably been twenty years before I figured this out. You know, but, you know, because you would have been taught, you'd been taught a different way in back in the 70s. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. You know, you, you talked about uh, how close uh, Dwayne and, and, and Pat were. And even to the point where the very, the first show we did in Tokyo with WWE, was, I think it was the first time uh, WWE had been to Japan, maybe like in 10, 15 years or whatever it was. And we sold out, you probably remember this, we sold out Yokohama Arena like in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it was right when I won the the undisputed championship. So the head, the, the main event was was Jericho versus The Rock, and we did uh, Tokyo, and we did Malaysia, and we did Singapore, and all three shows were huge, especially Yokohama. And uh, the main event was Rock and I for the title, and I was the champion, so I beat him. But then, as you did at the time, if you remember, after the main event was done, you would go to the ring, uh, you would stay in the ring, and just do like. A promo, like an improv bit, especially with Steve and Rock, because they love doing it. So Rock was on the tour. It was one of his last tours, and Pat was the agent for the tour. And I think it's because Rock wanted him to do it, and maybe Pat wanted to go to Japan or whatever it was. So it was one of the few times when we did an international tour where Pat was in charge. This is, you know, 2002, probably his last one of those things. So we would go do the match, 20-minute match. We always, Rock and I always had great chemistry. We, we tore the house down and had, had a lot of fun. And then afterwards, we would do 10, 15, 20 minutes of, of improv comedy. And people loved it. But I remember going to the back after the first night, and Pat was furious. He's like, what are you doing? You have this great match. And then you go talk for 20 minutes. And then no one remembers the match. You're just listening to you guys bullshit with each other, <laughs> doing this gaga. You're doing this gaga. And it's the shits. <laughs> and meanwhile, the crowd was going nuts and having a great time. And 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 and, and Rock was like, Pat, I'll, I'll probably never come back to these countries to wrestle again because he was on the movie star thing. And he's like, I don't care. This is bullshit. And then the next night we did it again. He's like, you don't listen to me. Both you guys don't listen. This. 
and he got all mad at us. So then the last show, because it was one of those ones where it was about a week because we had travel and, you know, everyone's drinking and just having a great time. And, and at the last night, Pat, we're going to do like a end of the tour party. And Pat was like, this is not a good idea. He goes, I know how this works. No one's going to show up for the bus. Everyone's going to be drunk. Everyone's going to be hungover. This happened all the time. I said, Pat, this is in the 90s. The guys are, are different now. And I said, I'll make sure that everybody makes it to the bus on time. I promise. I will make sure that everybody makes it to the bus. And he's like, okay, if you can guarantee that everybody will be on the bus, you know, at seven o'clock and we have to go to the airport, then have the party. And I'm like, absolutely. So I went to the front desk and I made sure that, okay, make sure everyone gets a wake up call, make sure they answer uh, and make sure it was whatever I did, the, something extra, like go knock on the doors. Here's, here's the guys that might be a little bit more troublesome. So morning comes and I wake up and I f- miss the alarm and I'm, <laughs> I'm late and I run down. It's one of those things where you throw all your stuff in a bag and run down there and Pat's standing at the bus. Everybody made it to the bus on time, except for me, the guy who promised that everyone would make it to the bus on time. Oh, and he's just like, he's smoking a cigarette. And he's like, he's like, I just have to, I just have to laugh. What the fuck? But it was like, like, I felt so embarrassed. Like Pat's going to be so mad. Like there was an accountability because Pat was like, like you said, my mentor, like he's going to kill me. Like if you're late coming home and your mom or, or, or your wife is standing there mad at you. But, uh, <laughs> Um, as we start to, to kind of wind wind down here, I want to talk a little about about Pat and um, and Montreal because we always say and you always say we don't need to get into the whole story again. But Pat was the guy who put together the spot that led to to the bell being rung. Tell tell us tell us about a little bit of the background behind that. Well, I mean, I it's funny because it was actually in in the documentary. Um, they actually shot it when, when he, he, you know, comes in there and just suggests it. And it's like, you know, everyone in WWE or, you know, it's like, it's like, it's, it's a lot of it is they, they, you know, Vince was always adamant that Pat didn't know. And I think it was because he didn't want the guys really liked Pat. And he, didn't yeah. want, I think they didn't want the idea that the guys wouldn't trust Pat, you know, cause in his position, he kind of had to be trusted. Whereas Vince, it's like Vince knew he could take the heat because he's the boss. He can, you know, if it's heat, he's still the boss. They gotta, they gotta respect him or whatever, you know I mean? They, they, they can, I, I don't think Vince cared if people were mad. I don't even want some mad, but it's like, if they gotta be mad, let them be mad at me. Don't right. be mad at Pat. So I don't really know. You know, it's like, even to this day, it's like, it feels implausible that Pat didn't know by suggesting that, but everyone was like, no, Pat didn't know Matt. Pat didn't know. And, and I haven't talked to Brett. I mean, you know, years ago, it was like, oh, yeah, Pat knew. He had to know. It's impossible that he didn't know. And, and he was, you know, the key guy because, because Brett trusted him. But, um, you know, I don't know what – I haven't talked to Brett this week. Um, we, did, we did email each other, but I didn't bring that up. But I don't know what Brett thinks today, you know, about that. But it's one of those things where it's like I, I don't know. Uh, Pat always said that he had nothing to do with it. Mm. You know, it was just something that, that Vince told him, but didn't tell him why. And that does make sense. You know, get the spot in, but didn't, didn't like tell him why. And, and, you know, with Vince, it is the less people who know the better, you know, when it comes to that story. And, you know, one of the things was, is that there was that fear that Pat was close to Brett, which he was, and that maybe not, I don't know, you know, Brett had enough friends and one person tips, you know, one person actually tips him off and goes, 
they're doing this, then the whole, pl- the whole plan falls apart. So from, the, from a Vince standpoint, you really don't want anyone knowing other than, you know, the referee they told the last minute, and I guess Briscoe, um, who I guess tells you how much he trusts Briscoe. But, I mean, I don't know how many people really knew in advance. I mean, his writing team didn't know. Russo and Cornette were in the meeting, but neither of them knew it was happening until the moment it happened. I don't think, you know, so, you know, you, to, to do something like that, you've got to keep it pretty, pretty close to the vest because, you know, someone goes in there and goes, Brett, you know, blah, 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 just, you know, then, you know, I could just imagine, you know, what would have happened if, if Brett was just like um, wary and, you know what I mean? And like not put yeah. himself in a compromising position. That whole match would have been a, a, a disaster. You know, it's interesting too, because um, a couple points to bring up there is one, Vince suggesting that spot. That's something that happens all the time. Make sure that the Vince wants this involved because he wants to show. So I can see Pat going, okay, once again, it's your ice cream shop. If you want that spot in there, then we'll get it in there. Two, we spoke earlier about how, how Pat had no fear of Vince and no filter to where if Vince did tell him and he didn't like it, he would have no problem saying so. And Vince knew that. So I would think, once again, did he know, did he not know, knowing how Vince thinks and knowing how Pat was, I would be inclined to think that he didn't know because Vince would be too scared, wary, cognizant of Pat's loyalty. And once again, he don't give a shit. If he don't like it, he'll tell you. And if he doesn't like it, he's going to go, I can't be involved in this. And like you said, what if he goes rogue and tells Brett, hey, watch yourself out there. Like you just said, Dave, watch what? Just trust me, watch yourself, you know? I, I, it's hard. I mean, because it's, it's such a unique situation that's only happened like, you know, a handful of times in the history of wrestling. But, you know, Mike, there's a part of me where you sit there and go, if you're Pat Patterson and he suggests that, you would just go, this is bullshit. You know, yeah. wouldn't that be the reaction? This is bullshit. This is just complete bullshit. I bet I don't know. You yeah, know, we're speculating. We'll, right. never, we'll never know 100%. What do you think um, Pat's lasting, you know, legacy is going to be in the business? And I'll answer my own question before I let you. I think that Pat. Pat's theories and Pat's concepts will be passed down for generations to generations. Like for me, once again, being so ingrained with, with Pat into my wrestling DNA, I had both Darby Allen and jungle boy over the last couple of weeks say like when they worked with me the first time, that's when they started understanding that it's not about how many moves you can do. It's about connecting and about fire and about putting things in the right spot. And Isaiah Cassidy said the same thing and all the stuff that i teaching them are all things that Pat taught me. Like you said, Dave, nine years into the business. And I think that will, I think Pat's fingerprints of the business will always be there because of the guys that he helped Sean, Brett, Chris, edge, Kurt, you know, rock, even Cena to an extent. How do you feel his, his lasting legacy is going to be? I mean, his fingerprints will be on the business for forever in some form. I mean, he reshaped, the in-ring, the in-ring st- style of wrestling. Um, I mean, there are guys that are, are, are influential and that people emulated, you know, I mean, as far as, you know, like say a dynamite kid or something like that. But, but as far as the structure of the matches and things like that, I think that his fingerprints will be on the business for, for generations and generations because, like you said, the veterans, this generation of veterans – that, that learned under him, whether they teach at a wrestling school like the Dudleys or whether it's you being like the, you know, the, the most experienced guy in the locker room with all these guys in their early 20s who are learning, they're going to learn, you know, and, and again, it's like 
they may not even know that they're learning from Pat Patterson, but, but they are. And then right. like, like the Iron Man match, the Royal Rumble, just, just basic things that we don't even think about, like how matches lay, are laid out or how finishes are done. You know, copied finishes that, that were his finishes that he conceived yeah. that, that, you know, you don't even know. I don't even know if it's that Pat Patterson came up with it, but it's one of those things that that was a cool finish and then you repeat it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, when you've said it and, and uh, Paul Levesque said the same thing, Triple H, I mean, I, you know, really, I, and I never thought of it this way, but he is the second most influential guy, like, like we've brought up already, of the generation. I, I never would have thought of it that way before, but when you really put everything into context, I mean, it's, his story is, is such an amazing story of, you know, of this, this guy that you would just think is just, you know, when I was growing up, he's just a great worker, you know, that's cool. There's a lot of great workers, but he's so much more than that. And almost to the point now, and I guess because of my age and, and actually seeing him in his prime, you know, I, I, I Mike Tanay and I are talking the other day and, and I'm just like, these people don't really, you know, it's like everyone's talking about the, the, the Royal Rumble and this and that. It's like, they don't realize this guy is like one of the greatest workers I yeah. ever saw as far as so complete. He could do everything, everything brawl. He could technical wrestle. He could fly. He could you know, play, play top baby face. He played top heel, greatest tag team, you know, one of the greatest tag team workers ever the whole bit. And it's just like, you know, you don't sit and think about it, but then when it happens and, and he passes away and, and, you know, a really funny guy and, you know, um, you, you would have never met Louie, right? Because you can't. No, I never did. He passed away before I, before I met Pat. Right. Right. You know, right, right before, um, like maybe a year before, but Louie was like, I, I didn't know him well, but I did. I definitely knew him. Louie was Pat's boyfriend. Right. Right. But Louie, you know, like it's, it's interesting, you know, reading Pat's book about Louie. Cause I, I, I never knew the backstory. I just knew Louie was there and, but Louie was a really nice guy. And um, you know, they, I remember when they tried to buy the San Francisco territory from Roy Shire and that's kind of where the falling out came or buy into it or whatever, you know, first buy into it. Then they wanted to buy it. Roy was just, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't even listen. And Pat, so Pat left, but um, you know, like it's, it's just an interesting thing because Pat loved Louie, but he loved wrestling. And it was this understanding when they met in Boston, which is when Pat's probably 19, 20 years old, that, eventually I'm leaving Boston. I'm going and we're going to be broken up. You know, I mean, this right. is just, this is just a short fling. You know, my, my career, my career is wrestling and I'm going to go all over the world at some point. Cause that's what wrestlers did. And Boston is just my first stop, you know, on the way. But then um, after he, you know, Louis bought him the plane ticket to go to Oregon. So he goes to Oregon, which is the, the, is the next second territory. And he's there for a while, and, and him and Louie are t still talking on the phone, and they decide Louie's leaving Boston, and he's going to Oregon. And then they bought a house in San Francisco together after Oregon, and Louie followed him mm -hmm. everywhere. And, um, you know, it's like Louie allowed himself to be uprooted like, like the wife of a wrestler. Yeah. Because Pat's career was more – and Louie Louis made money. Louie was good at the different jobs that he did. And um, – but he would uproot himself out of his, his love for Pat. And it's really a, a great story in its own way, you know, that, that, you know, again, and at the time, you know, think of the wrestling business in the sixties or the world in the sixties. And like Louis was one of those guys where like, like mad dog, you know, who was very close to Pat, mad dog, Bashan, legendary wrestler. Right. And, and it was just like, you know, you, 
you know, he thought that, you know, in Oregon where you've got, you know, you're running weekly and the ringsiders all know everyone and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you brought your boyfriend to your new territory. You know, it's like, this is horrible. And then Mad Dog meets Louie and Louie's teaching him these different recipes of cooking food. And all of a sudden, like Mad Dog just loves Louie. And like in San Francisco, you know, everybody like there was there was no stigma because everybody liked Louie and they, you know, hey, Pat, you know, bring Louie to the shows. You know what I mean? Right. So it was like, I, I think that Louie in his own way, I, I, I almost want to talk about him because he was a guy who could have really been, you know, an albatross, uh, but he, because he was so charming, you know, in, in that days when people were very discriminatory, um, that, you know, he was not an albatross. And also one of the things of Pat being a main eventer in the sixties is that there were, you know, he, he was the guy who in could have been discriminated against, but when you're that good and you can, and, and, you know, when you're with that, when you're right. that talented, like everybody wanted to work with Pat Patterson. I mean, that was the thing because he made you look good and you know, people might've been homophobic or not, but it's like, they still wanted to work with Pat Patterson yeah, and business is business. Business is business. Yeah. Last couple of things that you brought up, uh, you tell it quickly, tell, tell the story quickly about Pat creating the Royal rumble. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the Royal rumble came from the, the battle Royal in, in Honolulu, which made created the battle Royal in San Francisco. And it was Roy Shire's battle Royal every year, third Saturday in January, fourth Saturday in January. You know, and, you know, it, it, as, as coincidence, you know, Pat, Pat came up with the idea. The first one was in St. Louis, absolute disaster. St. Louis is a traditional city. They've had battle royals. The idea of people entering in unison, it's kind of like, hey, this isn't fair. Why, why does the guy who come in late get an advantage, right? It absolutely didn't work. And a couple of months later, um, they, they, there was the Jim Crockett Promotions had a pay-per-view. So Vince scheduled a television show on the usa network head to head this is when they were always fighting like this and um to, to ruin crockett's pay-per-view and dick ebersole was very close to vince doing saturday night's main event right and trying to come up with like they had a card but vince is like ah just a card i want something more than a card and um pat comes up with the, with the royal rumble idea again brings it up to vince ah that's terrible idea it didn't work and then Dick's like, well, what's the idea? And then so Pat explains the whole thing. And Dick Ebersole goes to Vince. That's a great idea for television. You know, television is different from an arena. Right. But it's, that's a great idea for television. I mean, there's, you know, anticipation of the, the entrance and blah, blah, blah. All the things that Vince just was like, oh, what? You know, it's like, almost like, okay, Pat, pitch him your dumb idea. You know, <laughs> Dick Ebersole is going to go, oh, brutal idea. And, 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 you know, Vince, to his credit, you know, he had so much respect for Dick Ebersole and for Pat. Okay, we'll try it. And I mean, they promoted it well. They tried it. And, you know, here it is. It's the number two show of the year every year, you know, behind WrestleMania. That's right. You know, just like the Battle Royal in San Francisco was the big show of the year. If you only went to one show a year you, in San Francisco in, in the 70s, you went to the Battle Royal and everybody wanted to get tickets to that show. And, and Pat... Pat laid out those battle royals after a while. I mean, the, the first couple of years he didn't. But what happened was Roy Shire had gotten into a, uh, you know, Roy Shire thought he was a ladies' man. He thought he was a tough guy. He's in his 50s at this point. Um, you know, he ends up, you know, getting into a fight with this boyfriend of some guy, some woman he's sleeping with. The guy beats the shit out of Roy because he's an old man at this point. And, <laughs> and he's useless. I mean, he can't even go to the battle royal, biggest show of the year. So the only guy he trusts, you know, is, is Pat. So Pat lays out the whole battle royal. It goes great. 
And that, you know, every, every year after that, it was like Pat and Roy laid out the Battle Royal. So Pat became, you know, Roy's Battle Royals were so different from everybody else's Battle Royals were like the Battle Royals you probably had when you were starting wrestling. It's like, okay, we're in the ring. You throw this guy, you throw this. No story, right? They would do these 30-minute Battle Royals where there's 15 stories. So Pat visualized and learned that. And that's, you know, how the Royal Rumble, it's, there's a story to everything. Like, you know, you know it's, it's funny because Tony's Battle, Tony Khan's Battle Royals are like yeah. that now. Where you, it's not just, I, I watch, you got to watch it close because this is going to lead to this and this is going to lead, you know, it's like he, you know, now people meticulously plan out battle royals, whereas before the battle royal was just like, go in the ring, this is your order of going out and everyone just kind of off until yeah, that's right. time. Yeah. And, and, and so as far as like the battle royal, Royal Rumble, whatever, you know, from learning from Roy Shire, you know, Pat created this, this thing that is, you know, I mean, an institution that will probably be like every January for the rest of our lives, I believe yeah. there will be a Royal yeah. Rumble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the one last story that I want to talk about just quickly as well is Pat's involvement in WrestleMania one in that he's in the ring with, with Mr. T and Hogan and, and Roddy and, and, uh, and Orndorff. Was he the ref or was the, he was cause, cause originally wasn't Ali supposed to be the ref. Yeah. So Ali, Ali's the ref, you know, it's advertised, it's pushed, and then the day of the show, or maybe the day before the show, they're around Ali, and they realize he just can't do it. You know, he won't be able to remember it. It was a sad situation, but they just, he can't do it. So Pat was just like, let me do it. You know, he, he was probably involved in laying out the match with Mr. T anyway. So if Mr. T got lost, you know, Pat's there to whatever. And so Pat ended up being the ref of the first main event of WrestleMania, and, and it went well. You know, when you had, I mean, you had three guys who knew what they were doing. Right. You know, I mean... And but but you had one guy who didn't have a clue what he was doing, um, and and you know could have been you know it could have fallen apart and 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 you know and and the, the way the whole match built and everything, which I'm sure was a Patterson layout. I don't. No yeah. one's ever told me that, but I just presume that it was just because watching it and everything. It's like you know you look at those matches like Hogan and Warrior, and and a lot of the matches where you look at like a WrestleMania match that that you looked at on paper as a fan and would say going in. Like mm, this one might be tough, and it ends up being great. So many of those matches are, are you know, Pat Patterson matches because he understood and visualized. Like he could, could would get like how the crowd would react and when they would pop and things like that. I mean, he had that weird innate sense that um, you know. I mean, you know, you would have that too in the sense of thirty years in the business, but also you have to have a good memory and just to. Just, I don't know what it is. It's just like, you know, a duck and water type type of thing, right? Right. You know, it's funny. I, th I don't think a lot of people know that Pat was the, the referee for the very first main event in WrestleMania history. So last question for you. What's the best Pat Patterson match that you saw? Is there one that stands out for you? You know, it's funny because I've been thinking about this a lot. And I really do think it was the slaughter match at Madison Square Garden, which is also um, the alley fight in Madison Square Garden. It was their second match. I think they had, they had won before. When BCRs first came in, when I'm in college, we would at, at, at lunch, we would get this uh, piped into this room in the student center and we would all watch wrestling. And, um, you know, I bring tapes from Japan and Memphis. And but I always because because at my age, everyone grew up on Pat Patterson, but he had left and wrestling had gone down and wrestling wasn't that big in San Francisco at the time. But we I probably like 
I, I'm going to guess I saw that match more than any match in the history of my life <laughs> because like in college, it was like, Hey, we want to see Patterson slaughter. We, you know, nobody like, it's one of those <laughs> matches where you watch it 50 times and it's just as good in the 50th time, you know, every spot, you know, but it, it's, it's like, to me, it's the perfect, like if you watched it now, you would just go, this is like the perfect match as far as a brawl. It was not a technical match at all. It's the perfect street fight because everything builds and the crowd is right with it. And Pat's got every little trick. I mean, when he comes out and he's, you know, you just turned baby face and you got slaughter who was a great, great, great heel. And Pat's wearing this, I love New York t-shirt, you know, <laughs> right. in that, just the little tricks like that. And, and the crowd's just, just loving it. But, you know, I, I would always think, you know, when I was a kid, like, you know, all those matches that I saw, the house show matches were fantastic and the Morocco match and the Ray Stevens match and Moondog Maine and all these guys, you know, that, that I saw, but I really think that the slaughter match really was the best Pat Patterson match that I ever saw. Yeah. It's on YouTube, uh, April 21st, 1981. So yeah, I'm gonna yeah. watch that right now. <laughs> Dave, always a pleasure talking to you, man. And, uh, is a great, uh, reminiscing about the, the genius uh, of Pat Patterson. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it too. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy. Okay. Bye.